One of the things that happens, I think, at Christmas is that we actually get a focused taste of what really our whole lives are about, except it's all a little bit amplified. For instance, there's an enormous amount of anticipation, mirth, or at least the hope of it, gladness, the possibility of getting presents, the joy of giving presents, the togetherness of being at Christmas parties and the festivity of lights and beautiful decorations. They do something to us. They, they rouse things within us, which is really fun. It's really wonderful for most of you. But, at the very same time as you have this heightened state of expectation, as you well know, you probably find yourself in amplified states of agitation. Because despite all those songs about chestnuts roasting on an open fire, you realize that when you get around that open fire, your family is going to be around it too. And they're going to ruin the fire. Because they're not going to be considerate of you. And the kids are going to fight. And it's going to be exhausting. And your husband's not going to talk to you. And your wife's going to get all over you. Maybe you're going to feel at a time when you want to enter into the the fantastic joy of all these Christmas songs we sing, and yet you're stuck with a profound sense of loneliness. You've got exams after all, some of you. Your business is tanking. Kids are sick. And they at least won't go to sleep. You can't control them. You've got health problems. And so, at the same time, you have this period where there's a heightened sense of joy and expectation and you also have maybe an amplified sense of just how wrong everything is. And it seems to me that that's something hopeful about what the Bible wants to make clear to us at this Christmas time. The author of Hebrews says, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. One of the contentions as this author of Hebrews starts to talk about part of the reason that Jesus donned flesh and entered into this world to carry our loads, to took on our flesh, to also take on our sin, was he's helping us in the midst of a situation where it's very easy to give up. It's very easy to throw up your hands in despair. It's very easy to throw your fists in agitation. Because there are two simultaneous realities going on. Jesus, the babe who was born to die, has been exalted, we're told, as the king. He's ruling over everything. There is nothing. There is no mouse or molecule 
or Michael, or Martha, who is not subject to his reign. The entire planet is under the control and kingship, the benevolent kingship of this Jesus, yet... At present, we do not see everything that's subject to him. In fact, it looks like not much of anything is subject to him. In fact, there is lots of evidence on a daily basis that would lead you to conclude that perhaps, like an old man after a big Christmas dinner, maybe Jesus has nodded off. Maybe he's dozing. Maybe he got bored with us. Maybe he got fed up with us. He's not doing things, it seems. We keep praying for this stuff. We keep hoping to see him, and everything seems so wrong. Yet at present, the author of Hebrews says, we don't see everything that's subject to him. And so the bane of this letter that was written to people who couldn't see everything subject to him, who had so much going wrong in their lives, was that they were tempted to give up, and he was giving them ammunition. To fire against their own unbelief to say, no, 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 no. Don't give up. Here's some mental resources, some spiritual provision for you to use as medicine for your own inner life so that as you live in this overlap between the times where we're looking forward to this king coming back Banishing sadness. Reversing all that's sad. Wiping away every tear. But yet he hasn't done it yet. Here's some stuff for you to keep hoping at. Here's some way to keep at it. And so he reminds them of God's, I'll call it, Christmas ambition. And... I think it's important to think of it this way. I don't know if you think of God as being ambitious. Maybe not ambitious in the way we think of being ambitious. He's not trying to get rich and he's not trying to make himself better than everyone else. He already is. He's ambitious, though, in the sense that he has high aspirations and goals for the people that he loves. One of the things that Swiss psychiatrist Paul Tournier, no longer living, once said is that we're always ambitious for the people that we love. And if you think about that, and you may not have thought of it in those terms before, is that when you actually love somebody, when you want their good, you always have some kind of ambition for them. You can't tolerate it if you see that they're not thriving in the way that they're supposed to. You can't tolerate it when you see, even in yourself, you're ambitious for yourself, you love yourself. If you see things that are disappointing, if you see selfishness and pettiness and self-righteousness and greed, when you see these things in yourself or others, if you really love yourself and others, you'll be ambitious for more. You want good things for your children. You want them to thrive. You don't want them to live on a couch, playing video games their whole life. Because you have some sense that maybe they were created for more than that. And at Christmas, it's important to remember when we celebrate the arrival of God in our flesh, that God has ambitions. And the ambition is seen here in the 
prepositional phrase in the first sentence in verse 10. And bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. And bringing many sons to glory. And bringing many sons to glory. God's Christmas ambition is to create a gigantic family of people who are like Jesus, who will dwell with him on a new planet one day. God's final and most urgent ambition in sending Jesus into the world is to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He wants a big family. Now you know this. We talked about it last week. To those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. J.I. Packer has said, if you want to understand how much someone understands Christianity, find out how much of a deal they make out of having God as their father. Because the New Testament makes a really big deal out of this. Now, some of you have had crummy fathers. All of you have had imperfect fathers. And so it may be a tainted word. But one of the things that the Bible would have us see that it's actually a fantastic thing to have God as your father. And maybe by contrast, you have a sense of what good fathering would be because of how bad you were fathered. But one of the things that good fathers want for their children, and God urges us who trust Jesus to believe about him, is they don't want their kids to be afraid. Has any small child ever run into your room in the middle of the night because they were scared of something? You said, get back to your room or I'll give you something to be afraid of. I'm going to stick strange things under your bed. I'm going to crawl in there and freak you out. No! You might be irritated, but you want to comfort them. You don't want them to be afraid. And listen to this. When God wants to bring many sons to glory, he wants sons and daughters who are not afraid. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, verse 14, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Think about this at Christmas. God comes into the flesh. He comes to live a life of suffering that he might taste death for everyone. That's what the author of Hebrews says. And his goal there was to die so we wouldn't. Was to feel the weight of death so that he could disarm the power of it. So that we wouldn't live in fear of it. And now, there are a lot of people here who don't think they're actively afraid of death. That's because we live in a culture where no one ever thinks about it. But if you're preoccupied with your health, you're afraid of death. If you live in America, I guarantee you, you're afraid of death. If you never think about death, you're probably afraid of death. If you're anxious, you're probably afraid of death. Because you know what thing that happens to us? We're the kind of people, when we have things that we're really big afraid of, like sometimes people are really deeply in the depths of their soul, they're afraid of God. So they never speak of him. They never think of him. They think, if he's there, he might be really mad at me. He might have the goods on me. If you never find yourself thinking of death, that's a big looming thing. 
what you might do is have all kinds of little petty anxieties. But they don't feel petty to you. See, we're inveterate pain avoiders. One psychologist or psychiatrist has said, almost all mental illness occurs because of an undue avoidance of pain. We are people who do not want to feel pain, and we will do anything to avoid feeling pain. We'll create imaginary pains. You ever stay up late at night thinking about things that haven't happened? But they might. Some of you could write dissertations on all the things that might happen to you. And all of them can't. That doesn't stop you. A lot of them are mutually exclusive, but you'll still entertain them all. And probably beneath all of that is just fear of death and of pain. And what Jesus says is, I am coming here to make you children of your Father so that you fear nothing. That's what Jesus' favorite phrase is. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Now that would be a silly thing to say to somebody if he wasn't taking care of the things that we very legitimately are afraid of. Non-existence is scary. But not if you're connected to the one who looked it square in the eye and wrestled it and pinned it, tasted death and came out on the other side, resurrected and said, you want life? Come to me. I've walked through death and so will you. Death can hold no one that I hold. God doesn't want you to be afraid. A great story in Narnian tales as Lucy has disobeyed Aslan, this Christ figure, and she reunites with him and she has not listened to him because she was afraid of what it would cost her. She's afraid that she would have been thought of as foolish. And he says to her in a gentle way, My child, you have listened to fears. Come, let me breathe on you. And of course, that's what Jesus wants to do over and over again. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of your fears. He wants to come and breathe his life on you to make you impervious to fear, to make you able to walk through your fears because his Christmas ambition in making you a son or a daughter is that you wouldn't be afraid. He also wants sons or daughters as part of his Christmas ambition, who are not condemned. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He came in the flesh, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In other words, We've got someone who represents us to God, who knows what colossal disappointments we are. Now this, and oh, and he came to make atonement for our sins. Now, the other thing you may not realize is that we're the kind of people who are always trying to justify ourselves. Think about this, anytime you talk to anybody about anything, if you start to train your ears for it, you'll hear people Justifying the clothes they are, they got, the car they have, uh, why they didn't do something that they didn't do, or why they did something that they they work it in. We all do this because we're trying to make other people think we're better than we are. 
We're trying to justify our existence. And usually the way we do that is by comparing ourselves to other people. And usually the way, the reason that we need to compare ourselves to other people and say, even though I know I'm pretty guilty, I am so much better than that guy. Man, what a louse he is. It makes us feel better. Temporarily. We tell our children, they just made fun of you because they're trying to feel better about themselves. We instinctively know that's what we do. And here's what God's ambition is. That we would be a people who wouldn't be condemned. That we would know we've been justified. That Jesus has seen us clear to the bone. He knows every infidelity you ever thought about. He knows all of your greed. He knows all of the ways that you have secretly exulted when bad things happen to people. He knows all the ways that you got ticked off when something good happened to someone. He knows everything embarrassing and shameful about you even more than you know about yourself. And his Christmas ambition was that he would take all of that into himself so that you would bear none of that, so that you could earnestly and honestly not live a condemned life and you don't have to justify yourself. Practice it. Try it out sometime. Try not giving explanation for everything about yourself. Trust that your salvation and your honor depend upon the Lord, that he really has atoned for your sins. That means they aren't the issue anymore. That means when you think about God, you can think about someone who actually likes you. You know, that's part of this thing about fathering, about God being our father. A lot of you in here have been fathers. You're presently fathers. And one of the astonishing joys to me about being a father, and surprising too, is, wow, how much affection I have for these little people in my house. It's unbelievable to me how much, no matter how irritating they are, and from time to time they can be, I can't help myself. I just want good things for them. I, I look at them and I don't primarily think, why are you bothering me? I think, ah, oh, you're magnificent. Don't you know that feeling, parents? And do you know that God wants you to Use that metaphor on yourself. That's part of his Christmas ambition. Is that you realize he wants to bring you as a son to glory. He's actually fond of you. God likes you. And I've said this before. I'm trying to use like these days more than love. Because everybody's heard love. But I'm saying, like when you walk in the room, he doesn't snarl. That's important to believe because most of you don't believe that all the time. But if you really believe that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful man, that he might be a sin offering, and that he would fully exhaust all of God's displeasure and turn God favorable toward you. So you wouldn't be afraid of death, and you wouldn't be condemned. <sighs> That'll be a Christmas treat. You can walk through this planet thinking that God's on your side, that he's favorably disposed toward you. He's not looking for how he's going to pull open the trap door. It's a wonderful day to live. God's bringing many sons to glory, many children to glory, who aren't afraid, who aren't condemned, and who know where to get helped. 
It surely is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We don't have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's probably not worth saying, except that we're the kind of people who find ourselves mired in circumstances that frighten us, that confuse us, that overwhelm us, and we forget, McFly, pray! You have a priest who's not primarily mad at you. He represents you to God because he likes you. And he wants to help you. Are you tempted in some way? Are you tempted to give up on your marriage because of... You wish the lemon laws applied to husbands? You got a jalopy? Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted to give up. You're tempted to shake your fists at God because He won't come through, because He won't take away the pain, because your daughter won't speak to you, because you can't find a job. Jesus had no house. Jesus' whole life was a career of suffering. Theologians call it his state of humiliation. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born. A life of humiliation. Jesus knows what it's like to love somebody and them not love you back. Jesus knows what it's like to be of sterling character and to have everybody around him call him the devil. Jesus knows what it's like to mean good for others and to have them nail him to a tree. There is not a situation, the scriptures assure us, that he's not acquainted with, that he's not therefore sympathetic toward. And he invites you, come to him for help. Call upon me, God says, in the day of trouble, and I will give you help. I'll get glory as I give you my aid. He set up a situation where he wants us coming to him over and over and over again because that's what children do with fathers. God has got this Christmas ambition of bringing many sons to glory, many sons and daughters to glory, those who aren't afraid, who aren't condemned, and who know where to get helped. And now, This is the tricky part and the last part. What's his method? What's the method of his adoptive services? What's the method of him engendering these kinds of things in people? What I'm about to say is going to freak out the neurotics in here, like myself. So listen carefully. Don't jump ahead. Listen to me carefully. Listen to what's described about Jesus. And bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through lollipops. No. Suffering. Through suffering. Uh, We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. 
Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. There is one, we could say, le motif that I have just said 14 times. The word is what? Suffering. Okay, I'm sorry. It seems that the method that God used for his favored son, this is my son, that is baptism, with whom I am well pleased, was that he let him live a life of deprivation. That's how he perfected him. That's how he got him to run the salvation project, the earth renovation project that he's presently underway. His preparation for that was being deprived of good things that we would think he would need. And if we are connected to him, the Bible's insistent about this, that's going to be our lot too. Listen how John Calvin said it. For whomever the Lord has adopted and deemed worthy of his fellowship ought to prepare themselves for a hard, toilsome, and unquiet life crammed with very many and various kinds of evil. This is the best Christmas gift of all, everyone. Train yourself, prepare yourself for a hard, toilsome, unquiet life, crammed with very many and various kinds of evil. Now, in some respects, I feel like a killjoy here. We're just singing about Christmas. And I'm telling you that God's going to knock your knees out. But it's not exactly like that. But see, because we are the kind of people who fear pain more than anything, when you hear me say that, when you hear me say that the way that God makes us into his sons, the way he teaches us how to trust him as daughters, is that he lets the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. A lot of us are going to jump ahead and start fearing. Am I going to have a car crash on the way home? Am I going to trip on the steps on the way out? When are my children going to embarrass me next? What's the next bad diagnosis I'm going to get? Am I about to lose my job? Stop that for a minute, if you're doing it. And realize something. We're talking about the Father who doesn't want you to be afraid. Who doesn't want you to be condemned. Who wants you to know where to go to get help. He just uses this method of depriving us to wean us off of ourselves. So that we'll keep coming back. This is what he did for Jesus. This was the life that Jesus had. And in fact... It's what you do in your own homes. I was thinking the other day, the generation that Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, there are people a lot older than I that I have great admiration for. And one of the things I most admire is that they're just stinking tough. They're grizzled. They don't get upset about things. They don't, they're not whining all the time because they know what real hard life is. I was reading this little book the other day, this Lookout Mountain School book that Billy Calkins and, and uh, what's the Hunter girl's name? Katie Hunter. 
wrote together. It's about my speed. Lots of short paragraphs. And Billy Calkins was describing how in his day, in the 30s or 40s or whenever, and he was going to Lookout Mountain School, that the principal, when students would run through the hall, he would grab them by the ear and twist their ear. I was like, man, they don't do that at Fairland School now. You'd be on CNN if you twisted a kid's ear. There'd be a lawsuit against you. Kids who got their ears twisted, I bet, didn't pitch temper tantrums when they didn't get to play with the DS, did they? Well, God knows how to wean us off of ourselves for our good. He knows that it's not good for us to be filled up with ourselves. He knows it's not good for us to think that we are the end-all, be-all. He knows it's best for us to cast ourselves entirely upon Him. And so He gives us suffering. There's no better way to do it. In our small group the other day, one woman said, when I was a kid, I remember one year saying to my grandmother, at the end of a day, tearfully, I was weeping. No one has done what I wanted all day long. Nothing has gone the way I wanted it to. And she said, I always remember this. My grandmother answered, not condescendingly, not angrily. She said, darling, I go whole weeks at a time without anybody doing what I want. I go whole weeks at a time without anything working the way I want it to. And Jesus, the Son of God, who came to make us sons and daughters, He said His will, His meat and drink, was to do the will of His Father. Because He knew that by giving up His life, that's how He gained life. He knew that By suffering death, he would taste glory and honor. And that's the path that's laid out for us. This passage today is a passage about sovereignty, the one who's on the throne, even though you can't see it, but also sympathy. He has an ambition to make us sons and daughters. He has an ambition to take away your fear, to take away condemnation, to show you where to get help And He's going to do that through suffering. You know what's helpful about this? Not so you can anticipate that everything's going to go wrong in your life. What's helpful is it helps you to interpret your present circumstances. Because you know what you do? It's what I do. By default, when things start not going your way, when the prayers don't get answered, It's so easy to say, he mustn't love me. He must not be good. How could he care if he won't do something about this? And the scriptures want to emphatically declare, and you must learn to deal with yourself and say, it's just the opposite. If he loves me, he'll be ambitious for me. If he does not cause me to suffer, it's because I'm a bastard. I have no father. I'm an illegitimate child. That's what Hebrews says. If he loves me, he'll be concerned about who I become. And so he'll shape me. And if I was a piece of paper, and an artist were drawing on that piece of paper, and that paper could feel things, when the eraser hit, it would hurt. 
But it would be all because the artist was trying to make a masterpiece. God wants to bring many sons to glory. He's going to do it through all kinds of suffering. But we never suffer alone. And the suffering is not the final word. It ends in glory and honor, being in the presence of the Father who has taught us not to fear, that we are not condemned, and that we have one who every second of our lives will be there to help. I hope you can trust that. Amen.